Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Kurt Ellis, co-founder and CEO of Foodcore. Danny and Kurt discuss how Foodcore service members lead hands-on food and nutrition education in schools across the U.S. After that, Danny talks to Rebecca Ayer, the CEO of Project Heal. They discuss how advocates and workers across the food system can help destigmatize, educate about, or care for people with eating disorders. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. So please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps amplify the voices of the folks uh, and organizations that we're, we're interviewing and um, I'm glad to see that our good friend Tony Hillary is already posting that uh, this interview is with two of his favorite people. Um, uh, Tony Hillary is definitely one of my favorite people. Uh, the the What has inspired me so much since COVID-19 is people like Tony Hillary who have taken school garden programs and really pivoted to provide food, not just for kids who are in need, students of, of uh, schools all over uh, New York and elsewhere, but you know, really make sure that that families are fed too. And we're seeing this all over the world since uh, the pandemic uh, began. Akshaya Patra Foundation in India is is making sure that kids, even though they're not in school, are, are getting fed. Um, as I said, Harlem Grown is doing an amazing job. The Green Bronx Machine uh, and our friend Stephen Ritz in, in New York. Um, I, I've really been impressed by the Urban uh, School Food Alliance and how school districts and school garden programs all over the United States and, again, all over the world are really just stepping up to the plate and making sure that, that you know, kids get fed and, again, that their families get fed, that they've pivoted to, you know, providing groceries for the week of fresh produce and that kind of thing. And so today I get to chat with a real leader in, in the movement to not for not only, you know, garden programs at schools, but for really growing young leaders in the food movement. And that's Kurt Ellis, the co-founder and CEO of Food Corps. Uh, he is uh, also the director of the award-winning film King Corn, one of my favorite movies about food. Um, and he leads this national organization, Food Corps, educating kids about food and agriculture with service members who are really now on the front lines uh, of feeding these children during during COVID-19. Uh, Kurt has been recognized as a Draper Richards Kaplan Fellow, a Clinial uh, Foundation Emerging Leader, a Kellogg Food and Community Fellow. Um, he has appeared on ABC, CBS, NBC, NPR, and serves on the steering committee of Voices for National Service and the advisory board of the Blue Sky Funders Forum. He has led Food Corps through really rapid growth from $200,000 a year budget when they were founded in 2010 to its current budget of over $15 million. Um, Kurt uh, makes me feel like an underachiever and a little bit lazy, but I am so glad he could join us today. Kurt, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Danny. It's awesome to be with you and with everybody who's joining us online. Um, so, you know, for folks, and I, I don't know who these people are who don't know what f- uh, what Food Court is and what Food Court does, could you give them sort of your 30-second uh, elevator speech about why the organization was founded and why it's so important? Yeah, nine years ago, a group of co-founders and I decided to start an organization um, that would unleash the power of young people around this country uh, to build a more just and healthful and sustainable 
food system for kids. And uh, we launched with the first class of 50 AmeriCorps members uh, working in high-need schools in 10 states um, back in 2011. And this year, we've got 250 full-time AmeriCorps members in 18 states. And uh, our work has also expanded from just being the AmeriCorps-powered direct impact work of hands-on food education and healthy school meal access within a school environment to also include policy and advocacy work, mostly at the federal level, and to include some cross-sector collaborative work, really trying to help folks across the school food landscape take shared action towards building a better approach to food in school. Absolutely. And it's such an inspiring organization, one that I've admired since you were founded. You're you're doing incredible work. I know this has been, you know, to say the very least, a crazy time with the pandemic and, and all the other work that you do. How have you adapted your services to really, you know, meet the needs of schools and kids and communities and your, 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 your service members to really, uh, you know, make sure that things keep going? Yeah, uh, you know, Food Corps' mission is to connect kids to healthy food in school. So how do you fulfill that mission at a time when schools are closed. Uh, for Food Corps, uh, that meant pivoting our work into three three main areas. First, making sure we are supporting efforts for kids to get access to healthy food in this time of tremendous food insecurity, with one in five uh, families with young kids struggling to put enough healthy food on the table right now. Schools have been on the front lines of making sure kids stay fed through the COVID closures. And uh, our core members have been supporting schools and doing that work, driving the bus route in rural Montana to deliver meals to kids, uh, packing lunches on the lunch line in Mississippi, um, helping stand up social media efforts to communicate out to parents and families where they can go to access school meals in this time. Second, uh, our core members are keeping up the distance learning with kids that they used to do in person in a school garden setting. Um, One of the things you can do in a homeschooling environment really successfully is cook a meal with your kids and learn something Mm. together about healthy food. And so we quickly adapted 35 food core lessons that we had that were particularly well-suited for home use, distributed those out uh, to kids and families. And then our core members have been keeping up video lessons with huge numbers of students and keeping that kind of connectivity in place with them as well. Um, And then third, our core members have been working to keep school gardens up and running through this time. We know that one of the ways school gardens fall off the priority list of schools is when they get full of weeds and they get ignored and they go wild. Um, School leaders, you know, understandably call in the the maintenance team to uh, bring some order back to the schoolyard chaos. And so we know that we have to keep school gardens in great shape and the kind of infrastructure in place for food education to come back online as schools reopen around the country. Um, And in the meantime, our core members have been really busy getting uh, school garden produce harvested and out to to families in need. Uh, I was just reading one of the the impact logs that our core members submit, and uh, one of our core members was saying that last week they harvested 40 heads of lettuce and got that distributed into uh, their local food bank system. That's fantastic and, and really shows how you can continue through a crisis. I am wondering, Kurt, what was that first sort of conversation when, you know, when, when when we all realized that COVID, like this, there was no going back, that things were shutting down, literally. What was that first conversation like in your office or, you know, over Zoom or, or whatever to, to pivot to what you're doing now? Yeah, you know, my, my initial impulse is an impulse I have to check myself on, which was like, 
like how do we jump in and guess now at how we're needed and how do we immediately like pivot and deploy ourselves in a like sure. nationally consistent way across our network. And I'm so grateful to uh, Zeke Smith, who's our VP of programs, who said like, you know, we got to tap the brakes for a second. Let's actually listen to what the communities we exist to serve are actually telling us they need. And let's be responsive to the pull factors and not get out and push ourselves into places where we may not be the right solution. And so the, the, answer was instead of having like a single consistent national redeployment of food core, instead we've been really nimble and responsive. And we told our core members, you guys do what you need to do to, you know, first make sure your health and safety is protected. We're here for you on that. And then second, get out and listen to what your school partners and your community partners are telling you is most needed. Um, you know what our goals are, healthy food education, healthy food access. But in this moment, really listen to where you can be of use and that's what service is all about, is really trying to respond to community need. And I feel really proud of the way we actually um, sat back for just a second to really yeah. pay attention. And then we've been able to lean in, I think, much more effectively as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a mistake a lot of nonprofits with good intentions probably made at the beginning of all this, sort of just jumping in and and maybe not using all of their resources wisely. Instead, But like the listening component of this and really listening to communities and listening to schools and listening to your service members and your core members, I think that's really key. And, you know, what has probably made you stand apart in, in effectiveness yeah, I mean, I, it's we're always trying to do things better and differently, but you know, it's been a real learning moment for me. Where I think so many organizations and food core is is one of these. It's easy to um, think you have the answers to what what the communities you exist to serve need, and uh, you don't. Like you're you're really the least qualified person to answer that. I work out of our national office. My daily life is not the daily life of connecting kids to food in school, except for my my own. Uh, first grader. Um, and so the, the unlearning I needed to do was really like, how do we push the decision making and the power around those decisions um, closer to the ground to the folks who are embedded in communities around the country and know that Jackson, Mississippi needs something that looks different from the Navajo Nation that needs something that looks different from rural Oregon in a moment like this. Absolutely. I think that unlearning, that's the, really the key here. Uh, we've all had to unlearn some things and learn some others to really, you know, be effective during this time. What I have always appreciated about Food Corps is sure you're helping, um, you know, uh, school kids, you know, learn about food, learn about gardening, do all those things. But you're also creating this generation of, of young you know, uh, food system leaders, people who are living in these communities, as you said, who know them, you know, very well, who are very connected. Can you talk about, you know, the, those sort of dual things uh, of, you know, building that generation of leaders and, and you know, t having tough conversations about social justice and inequality and all of those things and why that's important? Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the thing I'm proudest of that Food Corps has done over this first decade of our existence has been the ways we've been able to support the emerging careers of nearly a thousand young people around the country uh, and a few a few brave retirees, too, who have come back mm -hmm. to serve in Food Corps as an encore career. Um, and uh, more than three quarters of Food Corps alums go on to mission-aligned, mission-advancing fields in education and sustainability and food systems and public health. And those folks are all continuing to bring with them the lived experience they had in Food Corps 
as well as the kind of you know professional development that we invest in in them for. Um, and so in this moment, it's been thrilling to see the way Food Corps alums have been all over the kind of fabric of solutions in this country, whether it's folks at USDA, folks who work in philanthropy, folks who are now school nutrition directors working at the district level to stand up whole, you know, school feeding operations in this emergency setting. Um, just tremendously thrilling to realize that, uh, like, so many of the people who are trying to figure out how we connect people to healthy food through this time have a shared kind of food core background and experience. Yeah, I've, I've heard sort of the same thing from Tony Hillary, you know, like the, the, you know, how his kids are sort of all over, how they're learning, how, you know, the mentors that have been part uh, of Harlem Grown are really contributing now. And I think that's so important to, you're, you're really building kind of a family that stays connected. And I, I think that's really inspiring. Totally. And, uh, you know, one of the things I love about Tony is, and the work of Harlem Grown is they, they really do recognize uh, that leadership bubbles up all around us. And our job is to figure out, like, how do we unleash that? How do we tap right. into that? How do we sort of celebrate that? Um, and I think uh, this has been one of those moments in our country where, I, you know, leadership at the national level has, has been missing in some key areas. And to see yeah. community leadership really um, step up and keep people getting access to food. And, um, you know, our nation's school nutrition leaders have been absolutely at the forefront of heroism through this experience. You know, how do you overnight take the nation's largest restaurant chain, essentially? I mean, there's 100,000 school cafeterias right. in the country. There's seven times more school cafeterias than there are McDonald's in America. Like, how do you take that infrastructure and overnight deploy it into a takeout operation that's meeting the needs of millions and millions of kids and families. And uh, I know, you know, when I got the, the news from my kids school principal at PS 261 here in Brooklyn, um, that schools were going to be closed because of the pandemic. The first line in that email was not about how distance learning was going to happen and was not about how to kind of get set up with technology and stuff. It was right. that grab and go meals would be available this week across New York City schools. It just feeding kids is part of the essential work of our nation's education system. And it has taken a pandemic for us to recognize, I think, as a country, the extent to which that is true. Uh, but the incredible leadership and creativity and operational skill of school nutrition leaders has made it possible for millions and millions of kids to have food through this really challenging time. Yeah, they really are the unsung heroes in all of this. And they're they're doing it without any sort of promise of reimbursement on the other end. They're doing it, you know, at, at sometimes risking their own safety just by going into, into work, into cafeterias. So it is very inspiring. You, you mentioned something that I think is very important um, about the lack of, of leadership at the federal level. Um, we're still in the midst of, of an emergency. This is not going away. And in some states, it's, you know, the, the, the infection rate is actually going up and getting higher than it was in April. Uh, you know, Food Corps not only works with schools and works with training uh, your service members and, and you know, uh, accomplishing all the goals of the organization, but you, you really work to, to impact federal and, and public policy. Can you talk about what you're doing right now um, because this is such a critical time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and anyone who's interested in learning more, we have a Food Corps Action Center, and you can sign up to get text alerts and um, plug in straight from there to reach out to, to Congress people and other key players um, in this critical moment. Um, Food Corps has seen this as a moment to 
be paying attention to two things at once. And the first of those is how do we support the immediate relief work that has to happen now? And that means how do we make sure school nutrition operations are able to have the flexibility they need and the support they need to feed kids in this time and increasingly to feed families in this time Mm -hmm. and emerge from this uh, incredibly intense demanding period with their budgets intact. Because otherwise what happens is we lose all all the careful savings that school meal programs have built up that is what they use to do farm to school sourcing and to do the food quality initiatives and to try new things or roll out breakfast in the classroom. We have to protect the financial health of school meal programs through this experience. Um, So we've been making sure that school food advocacy has moved forward in the, the relief moment, but we're also keeping an eye on what does it look like to rebuild differently? And uh, we know that part of the crumbling national infrastructure that our country has to figure out how to invest in is the, the infrastructure of our school kitchens. How do we make sure that schools have the support they need this fall when schools reopen to have wheelie carts and cooling bags and stuff so they can deliver meal service in a classroom uh, when their cafeterias are closed in many places. But then beyond that, how do we bring good jobs for unemployed restaurant workers immediate stimulus through construction projects and really high quality, locally sourced, minimally processed food into our nation's schools through more scratch cooking. And we know that we have um, turnkey legislative language from the 08 recovery uh, that has been kind of funded at a very small amount since the initial burst that, that happened around school kitchen infrastructure then. We should bring that legislation back in this time and say now's a chance to invest in more scratch cooking and a chance for schools yeah. to do really high quality meal prep. Uh, it's just a win-win across the board. Um, and similarly, I think this is a moment, if ever we have seen the need for school meals not being treated as some kind of small side business that education systems happen to be in, but instead to really say, let's have a universal meal program that every child in the country can have access to every single day. Um, this is the time for that kind of change. And so yeah. uh, this universal school meals should move forward in this moment. So exciting. These are really exciting ideas that, you know, you're, you're right. They took a pandemic to sort of force uh, to, to the top here. But I think there, there are so many things that are that are exciting about it that because there are, there are win win wins right they're creating more jobs you're creating better health for kids you're you're you know the the infrastructure uh, that will will sort of transform the food system I mean I think procurement uh, and purchasing programs are are more sort of uh, recognized now than they were six months ago that you oh we can source from local farmers and this is you know cost effective these kinds of things are really I think changing people's mindsets about how how kids are fed when when they go to school that's right yeah I mean as we as we have seen our nation's food supply chains really start to feel the pressures of this pandemic moment and the shift from most of our country eating out a lot to most of our country eating in a lot. Uh, we have we have really seen the power of local food systems to be resilient and to be adaptive and to have a lot of different options on the table for how we can recover. Um, so that feels important. I think the other reflection I have is that when we look at the moment that the school meal program really emerged from in the first place, it really mirrors the time we find ourselves in now. Um, school meal programs uh, kind of started spreading in a wide scale across the country in the Great Depression at a time of massive unemployment, at a time of massive food insecurity, at a time when the 
farm supply chains were really messy and farmers were not reliably getting a fair price for their food they were growing. Um, and then ultimately school meal programs were nationalized in 1946 at a time when there was a major public health crisis of recognizing that we were sending young men off to fight in a world war who were poorly nourished. And here we find ourselves with the same collection of things coming together and a real opportunity to, to ask the fundamental question of what would it look like to rebuild our school meals program for the future and right. put equity and sustainability at the center of what we're trying to achieve and make, make our school meal program an engine for good jobs in our low-income communities, good access to agricultural markets for our smaller scale, more sustainable farmers, uh, and really high-quality, healthy food for kids yeah. who are nutritionally insecure right now. Yeah, I love that equity and sustainability are at the core of this. But what I also really like is that it, it it honors the folks who do this incredibly hard work who have often been looked down upon. You know, I remember uh, I, I went to uh, an elementary school in rural Missouri that had about 100 kids total. That wasn't just my class. That was the whole school. And, you know, you got to know your, I mean, we called them lunch ladies then. Uh, and you got to know your lunch lady. She She knew my mom pretty well. And she would call my mom if I didn't eat, you know, my whole meal. And I think, you know, the... I had a lot of respect for the lunch, the people who worked in the in the cafeteria, and I think that's been lost. And and giving people, you know, the this opportunity to be honored and respected again for doing a really difficult job feeding hundreds of kids, you know, at, at one school every day is really, I think, something to be that. That's what we want to strive for. These good jobs that you mentioned that people feel respected. Yeah, I mean that that is essential work. And uh, it's finally being named that and recognized as that. I think now what has to follow is how do we make sure those people are compensated in a way that reflects that we view them as essential? And how do we make sure that they are seen by their school community as essential, not just to getting food on a lunch tray, but actually nurturing our children? Uh, And, uh, you know, it's been it's been too long that our education system has thought primarily about kids' minds and not nearly enough about the whole child and the fact that what we really need to do to take care of our kids and to set them up to thrive is to make sure they're well-nourished and that they're cared for and that they're loved in a school setting. And food is the most powerful tool we have ever had as a species to, to show love and care for each other. I mean, it is the currency of human connection. And so how might we approach food in school in a way that really puts uh, the community building and the, the interpersonal connectivity and the sense of compassion and care um, really at the, at the center of how we approach feeding our kids. That is one thing that I've heard over and over, I, I think, through the pandemic. The idea of food as joy, of, of food as love. Like, we're now allowed to say these things. We don't have to talk in wonky terms anymore. We can actually say what food is, is meant to be, this nourishment that, that fills you with joy and, and a sense of well-being. And, and that's more important than, than ever now as kids especially struggle through the pandemic. You know, I, 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 I wonder... You know, I, I I understand that your your core members are working on still educating kids through remote learning programs. That has to be really difficult, though, isn't it, Kurt? Because you know, when you have all that hands-on, really direct connection with kids every day, and then all of a sudden it's either happening over computers or the phone or, or whatever, that has to be difficult. 
it, I mean, it totally flies in the face of what food core has, has built ourselves around, which is the sense that like what kids most need is not more screen time in the world, but more kind of tactile time growing, uh, growing a garden, smelling the leaves of a tomato plant, eating a carrot with the dirt still on it. Uh, you know, that, that is the experience that children need to have around food. Um, and yet at the same time, our core members are so incredibly resourceful that what they have done is like figure out how to do cooking classes where they're like basically like their own little celebrity chef in their apartment that. kitchen, making a meal and sharing with kids how they can make that meal with their families at home, taking kids on virtual greenhouse tours to learn about plants that are uh, growing in the greenhouse or taking them out to the school garden through a, a video lesson. Um, but I think where the magic really comes is when the learning uh, kind of builds a bridge back home. And we've had a bunch of core members who have harvested school garden produce and sent that home in meal distributions that have been going home to kids and families in this time. Uh, oftentimes with recipes, we've had core members sending seedlings home uh, in Mississippi to get uh, kids, you know, so many people are starting gardens around the country this, this season um, yeah. to invite kids to grow food with their own families. Um, and then, you know, in, in Montana, one of our core members has been baking carrot muffins and sending those out with the meal delivery. And there is something I think really important about um, just putting some humanity into the, into the packed lunches and making sure that um, kids are realizing like, Oh, this food comes from somewhere that was made by a person who cares about me and who knows my name. Yeah. Um, that goes a long way. That's what lunch ladies and gents are so amazing at in the lives of kids every day in school. And we can keep some of that up even through this incredibly disrupted experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this is probably, you know, the, the elephant in the, in the room question, what if schools don't open up in the fall? And, and what, 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 I mean, but I'm hoping you'll watch my kid. (laughs) I mean, what are your plans? What we're hearing is just really different things from different communities around the country. And I think that's only a sign that those communities are all going to switch places too uh, as time goes on. Um, you know, what, what we're preparing for is a really disrupted educational environment uh, this fall where um, kids are often going to be doing meal service in the classroom when they are in school. In many places, they're going to be in a uh, environment where there's a lot of pressure to, to revert to heavily processed prepackaged food uh, because that is easier and shelf stable. And understandably, a lot of school meal programs are going to be figuring out how do we keep healthy food access and the freshest possible food access? You know, how do you run a salad bar in a kind of classroom delivery environment? It's going to be really challenging. Um, And then third, uh, with the likelihood that many districts are going to be on an alternating day or alternating week schedule for some period of time, making sure that kids get fed in those days when they're not in school, um, it's going to be a real challenge. So no doubt it's going to be an incredibly difficult environment. And um, where I take some, some kind of hope and optimism in it is school leaders are really recognizing that figuring out how to make food a strategic priority for this coming school year is essential to them. It's the only way they're going to be successful at educating kids is to make sure kids, when they sit down to learn, are well-nourished. And so school leaders are paying attention to food in in a really powerful way right now. And we need to get legislative leaders uh, on board with making sure schools and districts have the support they need to really do that work as well as they possibly can. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know it's too soon to predict. And I, you know, this, this pandemic has caused so much pain and, and tragedy that I hope, you know, we, we, things are figured out uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it's, it's just a really uncertain time. And I, I think whether you're a school or another kind of, of institution or business, this is, you know, just trying to figure out every day what's going to change has, has caused a lot of anxiety and a, and a lot of, uh, again, uncertainty. I, I'm wondering, you know, we've heard so much about how adults especially are, you know, organic sales have risen. There's also the, a, a rise in Oreo sales too, but you know we've we've heard um, about how I think I've got more, both. <laughs> right? I think we've all have. You need a little bit of comfort here and there. Um, that you know, folks are more interested in um, food and nutrition than than they were pre COVID. At least anecdotally, we're hearing that, um, and that uh, you know there's a, a greater inf- emphasis on you know immune immune boosting foods and and really nutritious foods that protect us not only from COVID but you know other other viruses and other diseases and illnesses. Do you think that you know one of the the silver linings of the pandemic will be that there's more focus on school nutrition and that people are thinking about you know those issues that we discussed before, like procurement from local farmers, building that infrastructure? Do you think that that's you know if you could make a prediction and look into your crystal ball, is is yeah. that something you think will happen? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't think how we can how we can return from this uh, moment as a as a country and not recognize that making sure our access to food is in place for kids around the country um, is just going to be a critical priority for our education system to really get serious about meeting the needs of the whole child and for our policy architecture to really be modernized to reflect what school meal programs of the future need to be able to achieve. Um, I think at the same time, um, the, you know, the, the push for so many of us to reconnect with learning how to cook and making more meals in the home, I think has been a really positive thing even though it's been incredibly challenging. I think we are emerging from this with some new skills as a culture. And I think uh, that's exciting and awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a long, hard road ahead. There's no doubt um, school programs are going to be recovering from really significant economic impacts of this virus. And the policy environment is messy to say the least. Uh, and I think in many ways, uh, the kind of support that is most needed right now is the kind of, nimble, responsive, place-based, community-level kind of what is needed here to be successful right now kind of response. And that's where Food Corps service members are being really useful and why we're glad to see Senator Coons just introduced a really fantastic bill that would scale up AmeriCorps and direct AmeriCorps to do a lot more work on healthy food access. Um, that's the kind of change we need right now. That, that's really exciting. I'm wondering how your AmeriCorps uh, service members are doing during this time. I'm sure it varies. They all live in very diverse states, and uh, but I, I imagine this has been very stressful. Again, most of them are, are young folks, you know, 18 to, uh, to in, in to their early 20s, and I, I just wonder how this is impacting them and what you're doing to support them. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the call I'm going to after this is joining the end of your Zoom celebration for our D.C. cohort. Uh, really amazing community of core members there, uh, 15 or so of them who've just been doing incredible service through this time and who can't even get together with each other in this moment yeah. to, to celebrate the end of the year. It's been really hard. I mean, on a personal level, um, these are folks who committed themselves to a really significant act of public service this year 
because they cared so much about connecting kids to healthy food in school. And they built such strong relationships with the students who they exist to serve. And then to have that kind of pulled away overnight and not knowing if they'd see those kids again uh, during their year of service has been really, really challenging for our core members. Um, so no doubt it's been a really stressful experience. And yet at the same time, our core members are serving the same number of hours each week now as they were pre-COVID. It's just in this radically disrupted environment. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I imagine it's very difficult emotionally, physically, all of those things. Um, you know, I, like like so many other nonprofits, I think Food Corps has had this tremendous responsibility to step in when, you know, the, the government, whether it's federal or state, uh, hasn't been able to. And I, I imagine that, you know, your your budgets uh, for for this year and, and, and next year is, is not what you thought it would be six or eight months ago. Um, w- what are the challenges there around, around fundraising and around continuing this work and knowing it will likely have to expand? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge challenge because we are more needed than we have ever been as an organization. And yet the fundraising climate we're operating in is far more challenging than anything we've been in before. Um, To have the restaurant and hospitality sector that has been such a great partner to us experience the just total rug being pulled out from under them uh, at the start of this crisis and having our school partners who pay significant program service fees to us to have us working with them many of those school partners are not in a position to pay their bills right now. Um, so we're really up against it from a fundraising standpoint, knowing that every dollar we can bring in in this moment lets us put more core members in the field, lets us support more of this essential work moving forward. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to fundraise in a climate of uncertainty. Uh, it really Absolutely. takes the generosity of people saying, all right, I'll take a leap of faith that the world will heal from this and the economy will heal from this and I'll put the resources I have into action. And uh, we've been so fortunate to have generous people starting to do that around the country for us, but it's going to take many more. And folks can donate on your website, right? Kurt? They can, foodcore.org. Uh, you can donate or you can sign up for action alerts. Uh, we'd love to have you as a part of this community. There are lots of great resources there too. So it's, it's worth checking out foodcore.org. We will also have that available on our website and social media at foodtank.com. Um, so my last question for you, Kurt, you, you get to work with a lot of cool young people. I'm wondering uh, who is inspiring you the most right now? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, there's a lot of people who are inspiring me a lot right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll name some of the food core alums who have gone into school food service leadership have just done incredible work, uh, in the, in the wake of this experience. Um, thinking of, uh, alums like, uh, Stephanie Lip, who's, uh, running school food in a district out in California, um, and so many others who have figured out, uh, of course, alum of ours in, in Arkansas running school food in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, Ali Mircheck. Um, they're just, they have, they have figured out how to move so nimbly into a radically disruptive environment and yeah. do something really essential to keep kids fed through this time. Well, and I think that speaks a lot to your leadership and your mentorship that they're able to do this amazing work. Kurt, you have been a pleasure to talk to. Again, folks can go to foodcore.org if they want more information. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Kwame Yaboa from Michigan State University. Please stay well, Kurt. I hope I get to see you in person soon. Thank you, Danny. Really appreciate it.
Take care. Today I get to chat with Rebecca Ayer, the CEO of Project Heal. Uh, Project Heal is a nonprofit that provides support to individuals with eating disorders and advocates for mental health care policies. Uh, Rebecca was formerly the Treatment Access Program Director at Project Heal, and she brings a unique combination of clinical knowledge of eating disorder treatment, program development experience, and enthusiasm for mobilizing communities towards change. She's held leadership positions in strategy, marketing, and communications, and she knows how to set a vision, build a team, and really grow projects to scale. Her lived experience includes close relationships with loved ones struggling with eating disorders, some of whom recovered and some of whom did not, and seeing firsthand what makes the difference. And that's really, um, and she's going to talk a lot about this later, access to care and making sure people with eating disorders get the care that they need and that they deserve. Um, She is also personally committed to fighting for radical body acceptance and fighting against the insidious cultural norms of diet mentality and fat phobia. And I'm so glad she could be here today because I feel like the subject of eating disorders often gets lost uh, when we're talking about issues in the food movement. And and I think, you know, fatism and, you know, the, the issues that we folks use, the, the, the terms that they use are, are really serious and we, we don't even think about them as, as food system advocates. So I'm really glad that we can kind of bring these two communities together um, because they are, you know, eating disorders are greatly stigmatized. They are left out of conversations uh, about uh, the food system for lack of understanding of what they are, how they develop, who gets them, and and how they are treated. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today and, and helping you. us break down some of these myths around eating disorders. Absolutely. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you give us sort of your elevator speech about what Project Heal is? You recently taken on the CEO position, and I know you want to take the um, the organization in, in different directions. Yeah, so Project Heal started in 2008 because two 15-year-olds who had recently recovered from their own eating disorders um, decided that they needed to make a difference for people who couldn't afford either to even get into treatment or to stay in treatment. And so our founding mission was really about treatment access. And we've expanded and shifted over the years to include other aspects of supplementing care. Um, But at the end of the day, I think treatment access is the thing that Project Heal uniquely does. It's like sort of our specific lane. And it's the thing that really no other major nonprofit in the United States does for eating disorder sufferers. So Uh, our mission is really to break down barriers to eating disorder treatment access for those that the system fails. And unfortunately, the system fails for 80% of people with eating disorders. So there are 30 million Americans who have been diagnosed with eating disorders, which means that number is much larger because a lot of people do not receive diagnoses and never seek help for it. And then of those 30 million, only 20% of them go to treatment. Um, and people are dying of eating disorders. Not all eating disorders are necessarily medically life-threatening, but they're, you know, catastrophic to social and emotional lives of people with eating disorders. And one person dies of an eating disorder every 52 minutes. And so when you think about those numbers and that reach one in 10 people having eating disorders, um, and one in four people with eating disorders being male identifying and, um, 
the vast majority of people with eating disorders not looking like they have an eating disorder because they're not necessarily dramatically underweight. Um, There's so many ways in which the system fails. And even if you do get the privilege of being diagnosed accurately, there are just myriad treatment barriers. There's um, systemic racism in the medical industry. There's um, exorbitant costs for treatment. And so if, if treatment from start to finish, if you're going wholeheartedly and doing it full time, takes at least two years, that can basically amount to $250,000 of, of wow. cost. So unless you are incredibly wealthy or have like platinum level amazing insurance, the, <laughs> odds, of you getting, the odds of you getting denied coverage or kicked out prematurely and cycling through treatment over and over again is really high. And then you have all kinds of issues with um, competencies of eating disorder specialists, right? Because they're the model is really built around that dominant uh, identity of people who have eating disorders, right? So the people who have been able to recover are the people who have had access to care and then and those people are the privileged people so that's i think why the stigma around eating disorders are sort of a rich white girl problem exists because those are the people who live to tell the tale um, and who get educated about it and so and just generally speaking so we have all of these um, treatment centers that are really geared specifically to treat anorexic white female identifying people and there's you know the vast majority of people with eating disorders don't fall into those categories uh so if there are people of all socioeconomic status is affected, all races, all genders, um, all body sizes, all ages, then but you have these treatment centers that are specifically incredibly expensive um, with, you know, they don't have furniture that can accommodate larger bodies. They don't have right. uh, providers that re- reflect marginalized identities. Uh, they don't have trainings necessarily that reflect those. I know there's a movement towards changing some of that right now, but the barriers that exist are just so exponential. And when you have a, a significant mental illness that's affecting your brain function, your energy, your motivation, your feelings of worth, right. the energy you need to push through those barriers is like kind of not there. And so you have uh, Project Heal really exists for those people, the people who are ready to recover but are facing kind of closed door after closed door, no after no. And they come to Project Heal and we're able to provide them with treatment placements and um, one-time cash gifts and supplement their insurance, help them understand their insurance, help them advocate for the benefits they deserve, help them buy new insurance, um, provide them with accurate diagnoses and treatment plans. And so there's so much I think that we're trying to do to plug in some of those holes in the system. Um, But what's tricky is that, you know, this ship is broken in a way that can't be plugged with small holes. And so while we're trying to plug up these holes as they exist, like much broader systemic change is going to be necessary um, on the behalf of the treatment landscape, treatment providers, treatment centers, insurance companies and payers, and also state health departments and laws. And uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of issues at all levels of this system that need to change. And as long as the narrative is that this is a rich white girl problem, you don't get enough money going towards it because people don't really feel sorry for rich white girls, right? Like, but that's not who we're helping, you know, that's not who, that's not who has eating disorders for the most part. And so um, we need more, I think, funds to be going towards these eating disorder nonprofits. I think one of the craziest things I've heard is that 
collectively annually, only $10 million gets given to all eating disorder nonprofits, which sounds like a lot of money. But the opioid crisis, for example, gets like hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And so when you are eating disorders is the second most fatal mental illness, just below opioid addiction, but you have this incredible $100 million of gap between the amount of money that's being invested into changing that and saving those lives, then you're just going to have a really ongoing chronic systemic fatal problem um, in your your system. So that's a project that's going to change. No, and it's an incredible organization and one that my co-founder, Bernie Pollack, and I have followed for a long time because of the great work that um, you're doing and that the the co-founders have done for a long time now. It's, I think what um, bothers me the most is that there's so much suffering. And as you said that, you know, this is considered a a rich, you know, white girl, white woman problem. Um, and, but there are so many people of so many different socioeconomic backgrounds and colors and genders, as you described, how do we go about breaking those myths and and making sure that people understand that this is really This is your neighbor down the street. This is your postal carrier. These are people that you know, and and you might not think they might not, as you said, they might not look like they're experiencing an eating disorder, but there's, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of answers to this question, but the one that I'm most uniquely kind of equipped to speak to is that if we don't get access to recovery and to healing for the people that we're talking about right now, they will not end up becoming the face and the representation of the fact that these eating disorders affect that population, right? So if they're like missing from the treatment landscape and they're missing out on healing opportunities and they don't have an opportunity to recover, then they don't end up becoming eating disorder therapists. They don't end up becoming eating disorder researchers. They don't end up becoming eating disorder dietitians. They don't end up becoming leaders in the space or policy leaders because their lives are destroyed by their eating disorders. And so to me, like, providing treatment access is the gateway for people to be able to break through this and then become leaders in this space. The reality is we need more leaders that represent these marginalized identities speaking out. And it's the disproportionality, I think, of, of white women in particular who are in the eating disorder treatment space is because, again, there are the people who have had access to their resources, the access to the finances to go to graduate school, the access to the resources to do an unpaid internship, the access to the resources to pay thousands of dollars for certifications. So if we're not breaking down the barrier to even get people recovered to the point where they might be able to enter into this field and then lead, this is not to say that there aren't people with marginalized identities that are leaders in this space. There are absolutely amazing BIPOC therapists and dietitians, amazing um, LGBTQ folks who are leaders in this space, but they're not proportionate to the number of people suffering because there's such a disparity in access to healing. So to me, this is a long-term strategy of like, we got to get more of these people recovered so that we can hear their voice and see them represented in this conversation so that they can then speak to the other people like them and say, healing is possible. And, and we need your voice. Absolutely, It's not a good idea to ask those people who don't have access to care to be representing (laughs) recovery if they haven't had the access or the privilege, really. It's like so wrong to me that healing from an eating disorder that is so damaging is a privilege. It's a luxury. Yeah. It's not, it's not right. It's an incredible injustice. No. And I I think it goes back to fundamental problems within the U S 
economic and social system. It's a, it's a, it's another sim- symptom of systemic racism. It's another uh, symptom of how screwed up our healthcare, especially our mental healthcare in this country is. So I think there's so many things going on here. And, you know, it was initially when COVID-19 sort of spread and hit, I was initially really interested in how the mainstream media was, was uh, writing, you know, there were, there were articles in the New York times about how this is a hard time for people with eating disorders because they're isolated. You know, it brings back, you know, behaviors that they had in the past, but looking back on it now, since we've been talking, most of those articles were about, you know, white young uh, women and they weren't really representative of who has eating disorders, including men who I'd like you to, or people who identify as men. I'd like you to talk more about that as well, because I think those, you know, th- these are the invisible folks, you know, they're, they're not seen by the, the mainstream media Absolutely. in terms of these are folks who are suffering. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, there's a ton of shame around talking about eating disorders again, because it feels sort of stigmatized as like a choice or kind of like, Oh, you have access to food, but you won't eat it. Like, that is a, I think, really, really common misconception. And so in that vein, um, I think there's a lot of reluctance for people with already marginalized identities to then further double down on identifying as having some, a mental health disorder. And so I think when it comes to another misconception is that this idea, like so many eating disorders are absolutely rooted in, you know, diet culture and fat phobia and body acceptance issues, which of course, also trace their roots to racist and anti-black ideas and this idea of like control being superior to, you know, quote unquote, savage uh, eating practices. And so there's just so much research. Sabrina Strings has written an incredible book called Fearing the Black Body that really roots our entire value as a culture on the on thinness. Um, drawing it back into all these historical contexts. But I think that the other misconception is that not all eating disorders are really about body image, right? They're not all about a desperation to be thin. A lot of times they're also rooted in incredible trauma and they're, in, and they're rooted in, you know, OCD tendencies or anxiety management strategies. Um, so you see a lot of co-occurrence with other mental health diagnoses and their primary motivator is not necessarily about losing weight or fear of gaining weight. That's really specific to anorexia. Most people with eating disorders do have a diet mentality in there, but it's not always the primary motive. And so, especially when it comes to male identifying people, there are a lot of, um, I think there's shame around men saying like, that they have body image issues because it's so commonly identified as a woman identifying issue. And in, in fact, males struggle, male identifying people struggle so much. They also struggle with issues of control and shame. They also experience trauma. They also, you know, so there's all of the kind of underlying issues are just, they're not related necessarily to these, to the traditional like narrative of, I don't want to be fat, so I'm not eating. And it's just right. that's like a very, very narrow view of, of what eating disorders are. And I think specifically want to say something about transgender individuals who ha- imagine having this, this lived experience of like, I'm not in the body that matches my experience. So food makes so much sense as a way to solve or act out your own dissatisfaction or incongruence with your embodied experience or to try to to change how you're presenting. And so the incidence of eating disorders with transgender individuals is 
incredibly high compared to other gender presentations. And um, when you have, I think, people who are just distilling it to like wanting to lose weight, it completely misses how complicated it is to be in a body for a person. It's not, it's not about vanity. Uh, It's about something much, much more complicated. Yeah. So much more deeply rooted than than what we assume. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I mentioned at the outset that, um, this has been an issue that is, has been ignored by people like me, food system uh, advocates, food and agriculture advocates. And our, I, I've heard people who I respect and adore say um, very, um, you know, uh, not politically correct things about either people who are, you know, who, who are overweight or underweight, you know, things that they would never say about, you know, how how we talk about farmers or farm workers, you know, things that are, uh, you know, where there's a deep rooted respect, they don't have the same sort of respect for, for folks who are, you know, obviously experiencing some, some challenges. Right. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how we can really, and this is a big question and I don't have the answer to it either, but how we can make the food and agriculture movement more, one more aware of these issues and more of a, an advocate on these issues to organizations like yours. Ooh, I really love that question. I mean, the food system on the whole has so many issues that ultimately relate back in a really big picture way. You know, the way that a lot of um, industrial agriculture practices really leverage the labor of undocumented workers and immigrants. And so they're really exploiting people of color or um, people who are, you know, otherwise don't have other employment options to it. To fulfill the food system, I think food scarcity for people at lower socioeconomic statuses end up really affecting them with eating disorders. But it gets written off as a as a poverty issue or as a, you know um, just a, a result of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. But it can end up actually being more clearly diagnosed as an eating disorder. And so, um, the I don't know if I have a solution either, but I think that. Some of the best conversations I've had are when I'm talking across industries, right, with people like you about how how if if people in the food industry and then the food system start to understand the ways that human beings use food for emotional and psychological reasons, then they may be better able to serve uh, people on the whole. Especially when you consider again the numbers. If so many people, especially I'm using American, but there's a lot of data about global issues with eating disorders. Rebecca, can you repeat the numbers for our listeners again? Because I think it's so important to drive this home. How many people are suffering? Yeah, so diagnosed people uh, is 30 million Americans. And um, I think 25% of those are male identifying. And um, there are, I think a third of those individuals end up passing away from their eating disorder. So that's one death every 52 minutes. And so this is, again, it's not a vanity issue. It's like a health pandemic. It's the second most fatal mental illness. Um, half of those deaths are medically related and half of those deaths are suicide. And uh, that's because they experience such incredible isolation and lack of access to care. If you knock on 25 doors asking for help when you already struggle with thinking that you deserve help at all and you hear no repeatedly, then you are really likely to face an intense desire to give up, especially if your brain is malnourished and you're not able to think. So 
uh, I guess going back really quickly to the um, food systems situation, I don't know if this is a radical thing to say, but the biggest uh, problem that I have as a therapist, I'm also a therapist that treats people with eating disorders, both in how I was trained and I have a few clients right now, um, is just like, I wish so badly that calorie information wasn't available on menus. I wish so badly that our food labels were less shaming, like to have value language of, you know, like my LaCroix, you know, it says like zero calories, zero this, innocent. It literally says innocent on it because it has zero calories, which is an unbelievable uh, problem. So, you know, with my um, patients and my clients who are struggling with eating disorders, I'm like, ask, tell them to tape over their calories, like try to not go to restaurants with those things. And I'm, I'm really curious if the food system can start accounting for the prevalence of eating disorders in our society and the justification for having nutritional information when instead we could probably provide some classes in elementary school about listening to your body's hunger cues and your, your, and like how to feed yourself, not because it's healthy, but because you're listening to your body and yeah. all the food judgments and just all the ways that we allow our food system to be co-opted by a fear of obesity or a fear of fatness right. in the labeling. It's uh, the grocery store is a minefield and that is exponentially more true during coronavirus where we have a lot of food shortages. So the anxiety of grocery shopping before might have been really difficult, but it's, you know, now it honestly feels like a war zone in some grocery stores. And so uh, it would be a lot easier if we had less value judgment on the labels of our food so we could make decisions with our own intuition, our own relationship with our own body. What even is a 2000 calorie recommended diet like for different people of different weights and heights and, and genetic structures and bone densities and ages it just doesn't make any sense to tell people what to eat on a box you don't know them i i really that's such a, a brilliant point and 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 not not radical in the sense that it's not revolutionary but it, it's 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 more intuitive it's 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 something that takes away that shame and i know the you know the folks who fought for those labels they they did it you know the out of the goodness of their hearts in some sure. ways the unintended consequence though is you're right it, it does shame people i've been at restaurants and i've been guilty of this too where i'm like i'm not eating that even though that's what i want because the calorie count is so high or friends who've experienced that and so you're, you're absolutely right if if from the very beginning if we're taught, you know, how to sort of trust our bodies and, and trust our minds and trust how to eat, then those labels become so much less necessary. And that's, that's really something very, very radical and, but very, I think something, you know, that we should all be thinking about obesity and and overweight in this country are obvious, you know, the, the, the health related problems we've seen diet related diseases really have a, a huge impact on, on uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, um, we've we've seen the more, you know the infection rates uh, uh, and mortality rates for people with diet related diseases in COVID, you know, just be astronomical. So I, I understand why there's this sort of anti obesity effort, but the it's the the fat phobia part of that. You know, we want all folks to be healthy. It's the you know the the phobia part of that that I think it's hard to, to break that down. It's hard to tease out what we're, what we're actually trying to do when we're, you know, encouraging anti-obesity yeah. efforts, you know? 
Yeah. And I think that I might have a more radical perspective than you, given the conversations that you've had. But I, I feel like the research, especially if you read like Lindo Bacon and understand some health at every size research, it's it's these obesity related medical conditions are actually the result of yo-yo dieting and in, in almost all cases and, and actually like to yeah. be healthy by trying to help them lose weight ends up actually being resulting in those medical consequences sure. that to their size and it's actually not about their size it's actually about the fact that they've been trying to change their size and so this is think that counterintuitively the solution to uh weight gain is actually not about not trying to lose weight <laughs> so, letting people sort of be themselves you know being the way that yeah literally giving up the idea that you need to be a certain size in order to because it's not based in science. There's a real need for that training to permeate, I think, our medical sure. residency and our medical, do- our medical doctor training so that they can stop prescribing to people who don't need it, which I would argue is everyone, and actually helping them get more connected to their body and trust their body. Um, and so what's, what leads to trust with your body worse than having your doctor tell you you can't trust your body and that you need right. to change it like and it's right. your doctor so um and and they don't work so uh, no doctor would prescribe a medication that was only effective three percent of the time you know it, it just doesn't make sense so while i understand there are these medical conditions i think associating them with weight is incorrect it's associating them with uh the consequences of sure. the diet culture. So it's like these labels are having a counter effective uh result they're they're creating more problems than they're solving so interesting so interesting (laughs) and i know this is a lot of great information for our viewers and listeners who have never really thought about these things and and it's you know for me too so i'm so glad you're here i do want to shift gears a little bit though and give you a chance to talk about why insurance companies are are, are able to, to deny coverage for eating disorder treatment when the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, wow, that's a mouthful, uh, requires them to. They should be giving the folks who, who need treatment, you know, folks who are alcoholics or, you know, have drug addiction problems, they get the support that they need usually from their, the, you know, regular insurance. But this has been a, a really systemic problem for folks who have eating disorders. This is such a good question and a much bigger answer than I can give now, but I'll answer it in a couple short ways. One is that the, the Federal Mental Health Parity Act requires that mental health conditions are covered in the same way that medical conditions are. And what that means is that you can receive hospital treatment and outpatient treatment because those are the two ways you treat medical conditions. Eating disorders have many more levels of care required for, so there's inpatient for someone who's medically unstable, and then you have residential, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient. And so you have all of these intermediary clinically evidence-based levels of care that are totally ignored by the Federal Mental Health Parity Act, because at the end of the day, just equal treatment with medical conditions is not enough. It needs to be treatment for a mental health condition that's different than a uh, in a medical condition. And so there's that. There's also a weird law that I'm not sure about all the details of, but my understanding is that government funds cannot go to facilities that have more than 12 beds unless they're connected to a hospital. 
which means that residential facilities are automatically an exclusion from all Medicare and Medicaid uh, plans. And so if you that what that means is that if you need 24 hour care, but you are not, you know, uh, experiencing a low heart rate or abnormal labs or medically unstable, then you don't then you can't go to inpatient, but then you can't go to residential because you don't have that that level of care isn't even covered at all through government federal insurance, which is the majority of America. So those issues uh, are really complicated. And then the outpatient care is really complicated too, because most insurance uh, companies don't have an identifier of the fa- of specialty and eating disorders. So if someone calls and says, I have an eating disorder, can you find me an eating disorder specialist and network? They don't even have that list. They don't have the provider's identify that way. Um, Another problem is that uh, eating disorder specialists, for the most part, don't need to accept insurance to have full uh, caseloads because, unfortunately, there's so many people with eating disorders who can pay and the reimbursement rates from insurance companies are so low. So, essentially, that means that some of the best eating disorder providers just don't take insurance, which is not just their issue. It's an insurance issue. It's It's an issue that needs to be solved in relationship uh, between payers and providers. And there's also a lot of distrust between insurance companies and providers because basically providers tend to believe that the insurance companies are, you know, making financial decisions that are stingy and insurance companies tend to feel like they're being exploited by providers who would, you know, want their money in perpetuity and aren't actually making like discharge recommendations when they're ready to discharge. Right. So they just think that they're, trumping up their case to get them to stay longer so they can get paid. So as long as treatment is sort of like a for-profit model and insurance is a for-profit model, they're going to be battling out how to save money. And one of the ways insurance companies does that is by trying to treat mental health conditions like medical conditions, and they're not. So you may have a really crippling psychological disorder that doesn't show up in your body and it's still ruining your life. And does it mean that you don't get treatment just because it hasn't yet caused organ failure. Is organ failure a requirement for a mental right. health disorder to be covered? Right. I don't think right. so. So incredible, incredible. Shorter. <laughs> and as, no, and as you described before, we're, for two or three years of care, you'll you'll tell me the correct answer. We're talking about a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, yeah. that's insane. That it. Co- I mean, you know, yeah. no, who, there are very few people who can pay that, and this gets back to the the sort of, you know, socioeconomic yeah. and, and systemic racism part of all this. But that that's just incredible to me and in that insurance companies make folks jump through so many hoops. And mm-hmm. I also imagine that's why people don't get diagnosed because not only because of the shame, but they can't find the proper care for somebody to actually diagnose them. Well, yeah, because their doctors aren't trained in their residency, their, their you know, rotations to, to even screen for eating disorders. You're always screened for uh, substance use, smoking, alcohol, and right. exercise, but not for what you're eating for the most part, unless your doctor is especially progressive. And then, you know, in order to get an assessment where you can get a diagnosis, you either have to pay an outpatient provider because they don't offer their clinical assessments for free, or you can get a free one from a treatment center. But again, they really won't provide you an assessment if you have government funded insurance because they know they won't be able to treat you. So it's sort of a waste of their time from a business perspective. Yeah. So you have millions and millions of Americans who are looking for a diagnosis and looking for a path towards healing, and they cannot get one without money. Incredible. So, you know, COVID-19 has such, had such an incredible impact on the healthcare system in the United States. You know, people are who, you know, who don't have COVID are not going to the doctor for 
you know, regular treatment because they're scared of, of being in a hospital um, and getting COVID-19. What do you, I'm not sure if you're keeping stats on this, but I, I wonder how access to treatment for eating disorders has been affected by the pandemic. It really has. So for better and for worse, um, in terms of the available treatment, a lot of higher levels of care, like those inpatient residential partial hospitalization, they're not allowing out-of-state travel. They're not allowing as much um, as many admissions. It's like they have to quarantine when they first arrive. And so admissions to higher levels of care are way down and limited. And then outpatient care is actually open wide up because of uh, telehealth. So uh, you have, you know, if you live in a rural area in Illinois and you have no eating disorders for a hundred mile radius, you can suddenly get on a video call with someone in Chicago. Interesting, yeah. And so um, that's really leveled the playing field related to the geographic barrier uh, that people experience to eating disorder treatment. As far as how COVID-19 has affected people with eating disorders in general, I mean, every person who applies for our grants indicates some kind of impact by COVID-19, whether job loss um, sure. or increased stress or having to be trapped inside with family members that are especially difficult to be around in their recovery. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of distress around this. And, you know, we're now at like 25% unemployment, which means they don't have money and they don't have insurance anymore. And uh, oh. COBRA, which theoretically should carry you forward with your insurance, is sometimes like $700 a month. So but you just lost your job. Uh, so yeah. you're the people in need of treatment access, like their eating disorders are often worse and their access is much harder. And so Project Hill is really doubling down on our grants um, and our, our healer circle, which is our partners who provide pro bono or um, sliding scale treatment to our beneficiaries. And we're really working to make sure that people, especially those with marginalized identities, have access to care. Um, if, it, if a systemic barrier was a part of their lack of access to treatment, really prioritizing those grants. And um, for that reason, I would really love to just plug in here that if you are at all interested in supporting Project Heal, again, we're really the only nonprofit in the United States doing treatment access grants. And we need as much support as we can from our community. So if you're a treatment provider and you want to join our healer circle to provide, you know, one spot for a limited period of time per year to your, to your clients, for somebody who otherwise could never afford treatment, like please sign up. If you have some cash to spare, uh, please um, know that it would be in really good hands and it would go towards people who are affected by the things people are the most worried about right now between COVID-19 and so much racial injustice. Like those are the people who come to us for grants and those are uh, people who are exceptionally in need right now. So I would really Absolutely. love the support and happy to jump on a call with anyone. You can just go to our website at theprojectheal.org. Absolutely. I'm going to repeat it, theprojectheal.org a great organization, one that I am so proud to know and, and know more about, especially from this, uh, this discussion. Rebecca, I ask everyone the same last question, and that is, who inspires you the most? You know, the first name that came to my mind was Roxanne Gay. Uh, she is an author, and she is an eating disorder survivor and a trauma survivor, and she wrote Bad Feminist and an incredible book called Hunger, um, she is in a fat body and she's really reckoned with that in her writing. And she's also, like I said, a black woman who, so she's dealing with so many intersections. 
an injustice that has such a gift with words. And if I could have dinner with anyone <laughs> alive, <laughs> I would ask Roxy and Jay to dinner. <laughs> that would be a fabulous dinner. I, I want to be there too. I would like, <laughs> Again, <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, yeah. um, everyone can go to the projectheal.org to make donations to learn more to, uh, you know, uh, really support what is an absolutely fabulous organization. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me today. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Kurt Ellis, the co-founder and CEO of Food Corps. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Please stay well. Thank you, Danny. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.